Welcome, welcome, welcome. I would like to welcome you to episode 397 of the Unpopular Podcast. This is the man, the myth, the legend, Jayla Hunter. And here at the Unpopular Podcast, I'm not only asked you to agree with me, I'm asking you to hear me out. Going into this divisional round, every game had intrigue. Every game had a different storyline attached to it. And before we even go that far, The question is, what do you look for in a football game? What do you look for or what entertains you about a football game? And we're going to talk about subjective questions all throughout this episode. But that is a subjective, subjective question. Because you can ask 10 people what they look forward to or what's the most exciting what's the most important part of a football game and you'll get 10 different answers so i'll answer for myself going into a football game i think storylines are important i talked about this maybe last episode or a couple episodes a game storylines are extremely important in sports whether that's basketball football any sport that you're discussing a storyline is important and it's important because it allows the viewer it allows somebody that's not technically a part of said sport or said event to feel like they're part of it to feel like they are invested in something through storylines whether that's how is this player going to play? How is that team going to play? What happens if X player wins? What happens if X player loses? Storylines fuel sports. And I don't think there was a game this weekend or last weekend that had as many storylines as the Kansas City Chiefs and Buffalo Bills game. Now, you can look at this question, or not, you can look at this game, you can look at what I just said, the statement I just made about the storylines, you can look at that in so many different angles, which is why I think that this game was so intriguing. You see, both teams had storylines connected with each other, but both teams also had storylines outside of the initial game. Which is why I think that this was one of the most anticipated matchups of not just the weekend, but of the season if we were to have gotten here. You know that feeling. I don't know that feeling because I don't have a big brother or a big sister. But you know that feeling when a big brother, big sister, maybe a a cousin or somebody older than you continues to get the best of you at something. I kind of equate this to when a father or or mother, whoever is good at a sport, plays basketball with their child and they continue to get the best of them. And if that child continues to work on it and that child continues to grow and get older, there will be a time when that child is eventually better than their dad. I have a quick story. <laughs> I play basketball. I played basketball my entire life, probably since I was five. That's when I played organized basketball. And up until now, which I still play, you know, I'm not professional or anything, but I still play on any given week. And... For the longest, 
I could not beat my dad in basketball. Now, my dad doesn't play basketball, but my dad is physically bigger than me. He is taller than me. He's six, what, four, six, five. He's strong. He played semi-pro football, but I could never get the best of my dad. Like it, and it was a running joke throughout, you know, me and him and my dad's side of the family. It's like, how do you call yourself a basketball player, but you can't beat a football player? It, it, it was annoying. And that would fuel me at times. That would fuel me to like, yo, I'm not going to continue to beat or to lose to my dad. Now, eventually I got older. I got taller. I got bigger. My dad got older and I eventually beat him. But until I quote unquote reached that mountaintop of beating my dad, there was always a level of animosity in that area towards me and my dad. I would, there was any time basketball came up talking about me and him playing, he would always get on his high horse. I, I always be Jay. I always be Jay. Like, huh, okay. But I couldn't say nothing because that was true. Let's get back to this Kansas City Chiefs Buffalo Bills game. One of the storylines going into it was the proverbial little brother kid or little brother baby brother relationship that this Kansas City Chiefs and Buffalo Bills were forming. We talked about records of or records with the matchups of these two play of these two teams and how the Buffalo Bills in recent years have gotten the best of the Kansas City Chiefs in the regular season. But in the postseason, the Kansas City Chiefs continued to win. The Patrick Mahomes, the Andy Reid Chiefs continued to beat the Josh, Josh Allen, uh, Stephon Diggs, Sean McDermott, Buffalo Bills. And the question was, will the Bills ever get over that hump? Will the Bills ever slay their proverbial big brother in this case in the Kansas City Chiefs in the playoffs you see that's just one storyline we can talk about the fact that the Bills have been to four Super Bowls and lost all of them we can talk about the fact of Josh Allen has had statistically one of his best years that he's had in his career this year even with the rough start that the Bills had. You can talk about if there was any window, because I and that's I will apologize. I'm not even gonna apologize because I don't I'm not I'm not sorry for my take. I was wrong. I came in here and said that the Buffalo Bills Super Bowl window, championship window is closed. And I was even going as far as saying that this Buffalo Bills team is masquerading as a Super Bowl caliber team. Well, I wholeheartedly believe that I was wrong in that area. Am I sorry? No, but I was wrong. What I've seen from Josh Allen, what I've seen from this Buffalo Bills team, they are a Super Bowl caliber team. But... They have to get over this proverbial hump. Because if not, I mean, Kansas City Chiefs ain't going nowhere. And here, there was a fun stat. And, and, and this is no shot to Lamar Jackson. But this kind of puts in context how good not only Josh Allen is, 
but how the Buffalo Bills have used Josh Allen. Josh Allen, over the last four years, I believe, has 74 more touchdowns than Lamar Jackson. Now, this is the same Lamar Jackson that's going to win a second MVP. And this is the same Lamar Jackson that is a game away from the Super Bowl, something that the Buffalo Bills and Josh Allen, well, let me not say the Buffalo Bills, that Josh Allen has not been. But I haven't even talked about this game yet, so let's talk about this game. The Kansas City Chiefs beat the Buffalo Bills 27 to 24. And watching this game, I th- I understand because at the end of the game, they were showing Bills fans crying. At the end of the game, you were seeing on you know ESPN, on FS1, on different news or sports news outlets how this is such a quote-unquote depressing loss for the Bills. I came in here last episode and talked about balance and talked about how the Buffalo Bills have struggled with balance all throughout Josh Allen's tenure outside of this season. I talked about how going into almost every game, was a challenge for the Buffalo Bills because there was always a level of Josh Allen save us or we only trust Josh Allen. They never really invested in the running game. They never really invested in other parts of the game outside of Josh Allen. Now, again, Josh Allen is one of the most physically talented quarterbacks we've ever seen. I will say that. He is one of the most gifted quarterbacks we've ever seen. When we talk about a build for a quarterback, when we talk about size, when we talk about arm strength, when we talk about speed, where we talk about elusivity, when we talk about pocket presence, Josh Allen is one of the most skilled, talented quarterbacks the NFL has ever seen. But this game shows you that talent, having that build, having that title, doesn't essentially mean you're going to win. Now, getting back to storylines. The storylines going into this game for the Kansas City Chiefs were this... This was one of the weakest teams we have seen Patrick Mahomes lead. Now, a lot of it was because of the lack of confidence that was built with the wide receiver core because of the drops. The Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver core led the league in drops, which also essentially led to the Kansas City Chiefs offense not being as prolific as it's been throughout Patrick Mahomes' tenure. So when we talk about storylines, the storyline was if the Bills were going to win a game, if the Bills were ever going to slay the proverbial big brother, the proverbial giant in their way, which is the Kansas City Chiefs, 
this would have been the year. Which goes back to my point of why I understand why people were crying at the end of the at the end of this game. Buffalo Bills fans. I understand why Buffalo Bills fans were so upset and so enamored at the fact that or, or, or questioning is are we ever going to win? Because like I alluded, everything was in the Buffalo Bills favor this year. While yes, Buffalo did struggle in the regular season, they did they were coming in as arguably the hottest team in football. They just beat the Steelers. I think they were on a six or six game win streak, I believe, maybe seven game. This was the first time in the Kansas City Chiefs Buffalo Bills rivalry in with Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes that the game was in Buffalo. In fact, on top of that, this was Patrick Mahomes' first away playoff game. So the stage was set for Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills to essentially win this game. But when you watch this game, I'm not I'm not big on putting blame on one person. I've always said if a game has to come down to a ref call, if a game has to come down to a, a, a field goal miss or field goal make, that means something went wrong. Either something went extremely right and you guys just fought to the death or you guys fought and, and it was a very competitive game or something went wrong that you need or you needed the refs to to help you in your favor or you needed the refs to make that call or you needed that field goal. Watching this game, and I think what was so disheartening about this game when we talk about the Buffalo Bills. The Buffalo Josh Allen had an incredible game. Josh Allen played exactly how he needed to play until the fourth quarter. Josh Allen I'm not going to say was outdueling Lamar or Patrick Mahomes, but he was going toe for toe with Patrick Mahomes. A depleted defense due to injury for the Buffalo Bills was holding its well, no, it wasn't. What started to get stops. The second, like the late third quarter, early fourth, they were starting to get stops. Josh Allen was slicing and dicing. <laughs> he was playing great. And you can have an argument that he was the better quarterback in the game until they needed him to be the definitive better quarterback. You see, I'm not putting this loss on Patrick or on Josh Allen, but what I am doing is I'm laying blame at the at his feet or I'm laying the blame that he he deserves at his feet. Josh Allen has had an innate Let me let me how do, how am I going to say this? Josh Allen has had a habit of going for the kill shot. Sometimes at times when you don't need the kill shot. He goes for the kill shot. 
sometimes when you just need the easy four or five yard completion, he'll go for the 30 yarder. Sometimes when you need the easy flats throw or sometimes you need the easy seven yard throw to get a first down that's open he'll go for the 60 yard bomb that's a gift and a curse for josh allen because josh the curse is the curse and the gift is he's talented enough to make those again goes back to my point josh allen is one of the most talented quarterbacks the nfl has ever seen i know that's crazy to hear but think about it how many quarterbacks do you know have the arm strength, has the arm talent, has the accuracy like Josh Allen? I'll say it. Tom Brady isn't as God-gifted, talented as Patrick Mahomes. I mean, not Patrick Mahomes, I'm sorry, as Josh Allen. But he is better than Josh Allen because of moments like this. Josh Allen is is a much talent is a much more talented quarterback than Tom Brady, but he is never going to be Tom Brady because of moments like this. So we can talk about the sixty yard bomb that Stephon Diggs essentially dropped, or we can talk about the pass that went to I forgot in fact I can see his name that went to um that went to Shakur that would have been a touchdown if you know Josh Allen wasn't the pocket didn't shrink and if Josh Allen wasn't hit while he threw the ball that would have been a that would have been a touchdown that essentially could have or I don't know I say could have would have put them up but in Josh, in typical Josh Allen fashion, at least in this series, those plays were unable to be made. And I'm not getting on Josh Allen for dropping the ball. Obviously, he didn't throw it to himself. But I am getting on Josh Allen to why throw a 60-yard bomb, especially when you're scared to give Patrick Mahomes the ball because the defense was struggling at this point. And you don't want them to get much time. Why go for a 60-yard bomb when you can get the seven-yard seven yard, uh, completion to a Dalton Kincaid and it's a first down, which also gives you yet another first down and it gives you, a, it gives you time off the clock. And then we talk. Let's 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 go to the kick. Tyler Bass misses a potential game tying kick with like a minute forty five left, minute fifty. And you know, as one of the reasons, I think you essentially have to do your job. I understand the conditions are hard. I understand that it was windy as hell, but. The reason why we're getting on Josh Allen as much is because we need him to play or people need him to play at a high level to get to where you're getting to. You need to essentially do your job. And Tyler Bass at that moment failed at his job. But you know what? You know, what was the feeling that I had watching that moment in. 
watching him miss the kick, which was unfortunately wide right. (laughs) And wide right scars the Buffalo Bills franchise for decades now. I was watching that kick, and I thought to myself, even if he would have made that kick, it would have essentially been 27 to 27 at the time. I still think the Kansas City Chiefs would have won. I still think that Josh or Patrick Mahomes would have marched down the field in a minute and 50, a minute and 45 seconds and either scored or got them in the end zone or scored or got them in field goal range. (laughs) One of my favorite things to talk about on this podcast, and I will admit that I talk about it a lot, is the margin of error. And I understand that This is a team in the Kansas City Chiefs that the Buffalo Bills have struggled with mightily in recent memory in the postseason. But one of the reasons for that is the margin of error. You see, and I said this to. I said this to Brittany. Because we were watching the game together and I said, yo. The margin of error is so small for the Bills, for the Kansas City Chiefs, that little things, even even they could be first down sacks, they could be third down drops, they could be McCall Harmon fumbling in the end zone, it could be Josh Allen fumbling on potentially the last drive, which was thankfully picked up by his team. But I told her, yo, the margin of error is so small that something as small as a sack could drastically turn this game and can drastically end this game and can drastically dictate the outcome of this game. And you look back, I'm not, I'm not saying that the drop the 60-yard bomb, the Stefan Diggs. I'm not saying the drop was the worst part. The worst part was, why do it? Why? I admit that, and the last thing I'll say about this before I move on, all the factors were there. This was one of the weaker Kansas City Chiefs team. This was, Josh Allen was playing at an MVP level majority of the season and going into this game, he was playing at an MVP level in the playoffs. While yes, a lot of your defense was injured. The chiefs defense got suffered injuries in this game. And this was the year. This was the year. If there was going to be any year, this was the year. And quiet as it's kept, I'm going to wait to give my predict uh, prediction for the divi- or for the champion conference championships next on Saturday. But if we talk about play style, 
I give the I would have given the Bills a much better shot at beating the Ravens than the Chiefs. Now I'll talk about it and break it down on Saturday's episode, but this was the year. If you were gonna get over that proverbial hump, this was the year, and you ultimately failed. I think that and I was wrong. I was wrong. I can admit that I was wrong. I think that seeing how Josh Allen plays, looking just at the statistics and looking at how good Josh Allen, when he is great, when Josh Allen is incredible, when Josh Allen is playing at his at his peak ability, there isn't many quarterbacks in league history better than Josh Allen. But as we've seen, that doesn't matter if you can't slay your proverbial giant, which in this case, in the postseason, in recent memory for Josh Allen, has been Patrick Mahomes in this Kansas City Chiefs. The margin of error is small. It doesn't matter how weak or how strong the Kansas City Chiefs are in any given year. When you're going against somebody that has a winning record in the playoffs, when you're going against someone that only has three losses in the playoffs, in his playoff career, he has three losses. Two of them is to Patrick, I mean, is to Tom Brady. The margin of error is minimal. And <laughs> the quote is pretty much you have to come correct or you will lose. And as we've saw, as we saw against the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills. The margin of error was too small for the Buffalo Bills, and they ultimately lost to the Kansas City Chiefs 27 to 24. And until they clean up that margin of error or until they clean, until they they slay their proverbial giant. While the window, the Kansas, you know what it is? Very last thing I'll say. I think the Buffalo Bills championship window rests on two shoulders. One on Josh Allen and how and, and how long he can be great. And how long Kansas City Chiefs can be great. Because as we've seen. At this point, the Buffalo Bills have not shown the ability to beat them in the postseason. So shouts out to the Kansas City Chiefs for beating Buffalo 27 to 24. The narrative going into the Houston Texans Baltimore Ravens game was simple. Lamar Jackson needed to win that game. I said it People on national television said it. Hell, people out of Baltimore. I think Lamar Jackson even said it. We're going to talk about Kevin Durant in a second. Or we're going to talk about Kevin Durant later in the show. But the question is, what makes somebody great? And the question is, what makes somebody a quote-unquote all-timer? And in football, the quarterback is always going to get the most blame and the most praise. And 
when we talk about greatness at the quarterback position, because the margin of error is so small, not margin of error, because the margin of differences is so small, meaning because of the play style and because of accolade, not accolade, because of abilities that Lamar Jackson may be better than in some people, I don't think there's a wide gap. I think there's a gap, but I don't think there's a wide gap between Patrick Mahomes' talent level and Lamar Jackson's talent level. I think that there's things that Patrick Mahomes does much better than Lamar Jackson, but I also think that there's things that Lamar Jackson does much better than Patrick Mahomes. I don't think that there's a talent, a much of a talent gap between a Lamar Jackson and a Joe Burrow, between a Lamar Jackson or Josh Allen, between the great quarterbacks. But because I don't think there's much of a of a distance between talents, that's when you have to start putting in accolades. That's when accolades matter the most. That's one of the reasons why I'm so critical on someone like a Justin Herbert or someone like a Trevor Lawrence, because they have the talent to be in that Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson discussion. But they once you start putting him in there, the accolades don't match up at all. So going into this Baltimore Ravens, Houston Texans game, Lamar Jackson needed to, he had the talent, but he just didn't have the postseason accolades. He had the regular season MVP. He's possibly likely going to have his second MVP. He has the rushing records. He has the, 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 the Baltimore Ravens records. But it was that postseason that was a major scar in the Lamar Jackson is one of, if not the best quarterback in the league argument. Because what they would say is, well, if Lamar Jackson is that, why is he only one and three in the playoffs? At that point, it's like, yeah, yeah. Now, I was on the table saying that those teams are different teams. True. Very true. And this Lamar Jackson is much better than that Lamar Jackson. Very true. But your record is your record. What is on you is on you. And he needed to get over that proverbial hump to quiet some naysayers. And I say numb some naysayers because there's always people hate being wrong. It's very wrong. I mean, it's very hard for somebody to admit when they're wrong. In fact, there are people that will go to their dying grave knowing that they're wrong, but will never admit that they're wrong. That's life. There is people in your family. There's people in my family. There's people that we see on a day to day basis that will die on that wrong hill. And. People that say Lamar Jackson can't throw the ball know they're wrong. People that say Lamar, people that think or that said that Lamar Jackson can't play quarterback in the league, they know they're wrong. People that said that Lamar Jackson can't develop into a pocket passer, even they know they're wrong. People that said that Lamar Jackson is just a bona fide running back or a wide receiver and isn't smart enough to 
develop into an NFL-type quarterback. They know they're wrong. But most of them will never admit it. So most of them will die on that hill of Lamar Jackson isn't that good. Lamar Jackson isn't this. Lamar Jackson isn't that. Even though they know they're wrong, they will not admit it. It's very rare for podcasters like myself to even come here. I said I was wrong. I've been wrong on several occasions. <laughs> I I came across an old blog that I used to do when I was in college. It was an assignment. We had to create a blog and we had to have like two or three, maybe even four entries weekly. And I remember saying <laughs> with confidence too that um what's his name? Ah boy. Oh man, Josh. Uh I there was somebody I totally for in fact. I'm going to look it up. Cause there was some, I need to tell you guys what I said to let you know how wrong I was. Cause I was extremely and and that's it. I said in 2017, that Josh Jackson, remember Josh Jackson? He's still in the league, but remember Josh Jackson from Kansas and how there was a huge debate between Josh Jackson and Jason Tatum, who, who was going to be better in the NBA, who was more NBA ready, who was going to have a better NBA career, who should go above who? Well, I was on that Josh Jackson is going to have a better career and is more NBA ready than Jason Tatum. I said that. <laughs> I said that. You see how wrong I was? <laughs> and, and it's cool to admit that. But there are some people that will never admit that. So getting back to this game, Lamar Jackson not only needed to win this game for his own for his own story. But he needed to win this game because of how the dominoes were lining up. Spoiler alert, newsflash, it's very hard to win a championship in any sport. It's very hard to win in any sport. These are professional teams, professional athletes that we're going against. And there are some times, and, and this is, Going back to the first point, this is why I got on Josh Allen so many times. And this is why I was I was standing on that jo the Bills are masquerading as Super Bowl champion or Super Bowl caliber teams because it's very rare. It happens at times. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But it's very rare. But there are occasions where everything lines up for you. Everything lines up for your team. To essentially make a deep playoff run, to essentially win a Super Bowl, everything lines up in very rare instances. For the Bills, this has happened maybe twice when they had a shot to play Joe Burrow at home. The, it was snowing. That was their shot. They blew that one. They had Kansas City Chiefs, one of the weakest Kansas City Chiefs, at least offenses, Patrick Mahomes has had. And you're at home, first 
away game for Patrick Mahomes. You blew that one. If you look at this Baltimore Ravens team, everything is lining up for them. The stars are aligning for Baltimore. Lamar Jackson is having one of his best statistical seasons he's had in his career. He's about to win his second MVP. And this is the by, by far the best team that he has ever had. This isn't the first time he's been number one in the AFC. Don't get me wrong. But this is by far the best team that he has ever had. Whether we talk about um, having the wide receiver core with Zay Flowers and Odell Beckham Jr. Or having Isaiah Likely emerge as a top top target seeing as though Andrew or Mark Andrews was out the running game they're down to the third and fourth string running backs but Gus Edwards and and Hall they're good and then you also have Delvin Cook who made some plays and then on the defense side of the ball this is the best defense they've ever had with Roquan Smith and Jadavion Clowney and Marlon Humphreys and Kyle Hamilton and I think his name is Metabitsi. And Patrick Queen. This is this the the thing the stuff the, the Baltimore Ravens pretty much demolished through the first se- first or regular season. Yes, they had what three losses, maybe four losses. Um, I'm not gonna really count the last one against the Steelers because nobody played. So they had pretty much three losses, and all three of those losses, they were up in every single game with two minutes to go in the game. But they did a demolition job on the 49ers. They did a demolition job on the Dolphins. They did a demolition job on the Lions. They beat, this was the year. So... And the, and the Baltimore Ravens looked all looked all of a Super Bowl looked like all of a Super Bowl caliber team. So this was the year that Lamar Jackson had to win, had to. There was no, there's nothing, uh, barring an injury, which knock on wood, I don't hope for anyone. There was nothing that you could have said. To me, to justify Baltimore losing this game if they would have lost. And and don't get me wrong, that even that's even coming off of how good the Houston Texans have been. Shouts out to the Houston Texans, man. The fact that they got here with a first year coach, first year quarterback, a first year defensive star is incredible. And there was a lot of people, not a lot of people, but there were some people that said, no, I'm, you know, CJ Stroud has been great, which he has, and he is likely or possible to win the offensive rookie of the year. You can see a a lane where they would have lost, where they could have lost. That is the Baltimore Ravens, but Lamar Jackson needed this win. And the Baltimore Ravens beat the Houston Texans 34 to 10. It was it was shaking in the beginning, and like I said, it was going to be rust. 
I said, if there was one thing that can beat the Baltimore Ravens, it was injuries and rust. And they look rusty as hell the first half of this game. They went into halftime tied 10-10. And C.J. Stroud played as good as he could, but along playing with playing against this defense is tough on anyone. But they looked extremely rusty. They looked like a team that was off to some of these players three weeks. Because remember, a lot of the starters didn't play in the Steelers game. So a lot of these players haven't played an NFL game in three weeks. And it it looked like it. But come second half, <laughs> the Baltimore Ravens looked all of the team that they look like this entire year. Lamar Jackson. Yo, Lamar Jackson threw for 152 yards and and ran for 100 yards. And they essentially demolished the Houston Texans. And I, I'm not saying I, I think that proverbial monkey is not off of Lamar Jackson's back because I think a lot of people I am not gonna I'm gonna hold him to. I think Lamar Jackson's still great whether you win or not. But I think a lot of people expected them to beat the Texans, seeing as though the Texans were the second youngest team in the in the playoffs next to the Green Bay Packers. I think the test and the defining moment of Lamar Jackson's career is going to come on Saturday, going against the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, again, shouts out, and I'm not overlooking, shouts out to the Houston Texans for getting this far. Because no one, and I mean no one, expected the Texans not only to be this good, but to even have a say in the divisional round. Again, this is the same Texans team that was fighting tooth and nail to get into the playoffs with the Jaguars. And if it wasn't for the Jaguars stumbling in the last game, against the Titans, there was a good shot that the Texans might not even make it. Now, they all essentially had to beat the Colts, but you know. But shouts out to the Ravens for beating the Houston Texans 34-10. to 10. The Baltimore Ravens look all of, all of a Super Bowl caliber team. And I'll give my prediction on Saturday. <laughs> You know what I think the the You know what new information does? New data. You know what it does? It change it, it I think that new information, new data, new stats, you can say, allows for the ability allows for the ability to change opinions. And allows for the ability to either enhance, improve, or completely change your stance on something. A person, a human being, 
is drastically different from the age five than they are at age 25. A 25 year old is much different than a 55 year old because there's life in the middle of that. And things, situations, moments change not only you, but change the way you think and change the way that you act and change the way that possibly you go about life. That's just new information that you are giving, uh, given allows you to change your perspective on life. The same goes with sports. New information should allow you to change your perspective, to change your view on a player, on a team, on a situation. Going into the 49ers and Green Bay game, I thought that it was a great story that the Green Bay Packers were on. It was a great wave that the Green Bay Packers are on. Seeing as how they looked from the beginning of the year to how they looked in the divisional or how they looked in the play or at the end of the year, let's just say that. They look drastically different. Jordan Love has improved. The wide receivers have improved. Matt LaFleur as a coach has improved to the point where Again, this is the youngest team in football, I believe, at least the youngest offense. And the team in week one, there's not not there's no way in heaven or hell they would have even made the playoffs. But there's no way in heaven or hell that the week one Green Bay Packers was going to demolish the Cowboys like they did. But with new information, with new, with, with time, with development, they improved. And we got what we got. So going into this game, while yes, I will say that the Green Bay Packers were much improved. I didn't think there was any shot. I'm not going to say any shot. I thought it was a long shot for them to beat the 49ers. Because of the information that I was provided by the 49ers. You have one of the one of the most stacked offenses. You have one of the most stacked teams in general by name. But like life, like moments, like time, things allow you to change your perspective on a team, on a player, hell, on yourself. I feel much differently about the 49ers now than I did before they essentially beat the Green Bay Packers 24 to 21. Going into this game, I thought that the 49ers were a juggernaut. And they have been majority of the season. They're 12 and 5. They their their biggest hiccup was when they weren't completely healthy and going against the Baltimore Ravens. I didn't think that there was a team in the A on the NFC, at least, outside of maybe the Cowboys, that could not just win 
against the 49ers, but compete against the 49ers. The Green Bay Packers had every shot to win this game. They were up at ha- they were up going into the fourth quarter and a Kyle Shanahan team was like 0 and 13 or 0 and 30 something or whatever when trailing going into the fourth. Jordan Love was incredible went in moments. Aaron Jones was incredible. The Green Bay Packers had every shot. And there was a good part of this game where I thought the Green Bay Packers were going to win this game. But Jordan Love threw two interceptions that essentially sealed the game for the 49ers. And Brock Purdy... Even though he struggled in the first half mightily, he still finished 23 for 39, 252 yards and one touchdown. Christian McCaffrey had 98 carries for two touchdowns. But it's it's interesting and it's crazy when I think about this, that even though the Green Bay Packers lost and the 49ers win, one, I have two completely different feelings about both of these teams right now. And I'm more optimistic, surprisingly, about the Green Bay Packers than I am with the 49ers. Again, it goes back to things changing and data changing. I did not foresee the Green Bay Packers not only just being here, but being this good from week one of the season. And now when I'm looking at the landscape of the Green Bay Packers and the landscape of the league, I can see for years to, for a a good years to come, they have our, they have the quarterback of the future for them. Jordan Love has proven that he is the quarterback of the future for the Green Bay Packers. And they have one of the deepest offenses in football, whether we talk about Aaron Jones, whether we talk about Christian Watson, whether we talk about Romeo Dobbs. They have a legit team. Yeah, they have to shore some things up on the defense, obviously, but they have a legit team. I... The future is bright, in my opinion, for the Green Bay Packers. Even in a loss. But how do I feel about the 49ers? The 49ers used to have this, you know, used to have this mantra. The 49ers used to not be able to run on this team. Used to not be able to get any type of ground game on this team and as you've seen for the last maybe three opponents that's not essentially true at this point I rave at Chase Young I thought getting Chase Young was going to put the nail in the proverbial challenger's coffin against the 49ers well Chase Young hasn't been that good for the 49ers. And 
for some reason, the defense, with the names that it has, hasn't been as dominant as I thought they would be. Again, there was a there was a the forty the the Green Bay Packers could have and, and probably should have won this game. And statistically, Brock Purdy is one of the best quarterbacks in the league while being pressured. I think statistically, he's probably number one as far as passing yards. But and shouts out to Colin Cowherd, he pointed this out. The reason why that's probably different or that's over a Patrick Mahomes or a Lamar Jackson or Josh Allen is because when they're pressured, they get out the pocket. Brock Purdy doesn't have that luxury. Brock Purdy needs to pass it. He needs to get it out. And he has the weapons to do that. But one of the question marks that I had about Brock Purdy and that we saw is what do you look like when you don't have all the bullets in your gun? When you don't have a Christian McCaffrey humming, when you don't have a Debo Samuel, when you don't have a George Kittle, when you don't have a Brandon Ayuk. Well, George Kitt, well, Debo Samuels got went out the game early. And on top of that, it was raining and it's and Brock Purdy had a tough time gripping the ball. I'm not going to spoil who I think is going to win between uh, an AFC championship or no NFC championship. But as we talk right now, Debo Samuels is 50-50. And I think the 49ers are 8-9 if he doesn't play. Because, which is shocking, but it's true. When Brock Purdy does not have all his all his bullets in his gun, the 49ers with a really good tight end, with a really good running back, with a really good number two wide receiver, they turn into a one-dimensional team. Offensively, at least, because it's it turns into an extreme reliance on Christian McCaffrey, which looked eerily similar to what he remembered and what he saw in Carolina. They won. So shouts out to the 49ers. They won. But I feel much different about them now than I did before the game. And we'll see. <laughs> They're marching on. So there is that. I don't think there's anybody outside of, of course, their opponents' uh, fan bases. I don't think there's anybody that isn't rooting for the Detroit Lions right now. I think the Detroit Lions is the most feel-good story in, in sports right now. You're talking about such a 
positivity deprived franchise for decades. Now, essentially a game away from making their first Super Bowl. And like it everything feels good <laughs> when discussing the Lions. I don't essentially I don't I don't know if they will win the Super Bowl. I don't know if they even make the Super Bowl, but it I think that this is a win. Mind you Dan Campbell and this team went thir- three and thirteen and won their first year. And the, the the Detroit Lions is the perfect. And let me let me reiterate. The Detroit Lions is the perfect example of how to build a team the right way. The Detroit Lions is the perfect example. This Detroit Lions is the perfect example of fit matters. You see, don't get it twisted. When Jared Goff got traded to the Detroit Lions, it was looked at as a death sentence for his career. It was looked at as you go to Detroit to die. In fact, Matthew Stafford got out of Detroit to finally win, and he essentially did with the Rams. The the premise and the thought was you are never going to be able to win in Detroit, period. And for majority of their franchise life, that's been the truth. So when you get a Jared Goff, you don't expect much out of that. Even though Jared Goff did help the Rams make it to a Super Bowl, they essentially lost that one, but still. When you have Dan Campbell, people head-scratching press conference talking about biting people's ankles and biting people's knees off. It's like, okay, yeah, Uh, all right. (laughs) Or when you get players that have didn't work or was okay in in other places, like a David Montgomery. Or when you get players that have interesting names but wasn't really a standout in college that much in Amara St. Brown. Or when you have afterthought players like Josh Reynolds. Or when you get a linebacker and a running back in the first round of the draft in Aiden Hutchinson and Jameer Gibbs, and people look at you like, you just picked a running back in the first round? Or when you have a GM that knows ball, <laughs> when you have a GM that allows the coach and and allows his front office and allows, or when he makes the right decisions, this is what you get. This is not a fluke. This isn't a team that stumbled on being good. This isn't a team that accidentally got great. This isn't a team that accidentally had pieces hit. 
This is what, this is how you build a championship caliber team. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to win a championship. I'm not saying that they're even going to make it. But when you looked at that 3-13 and and 1 Detroit Lions team, did you ever think in a year or two they would be in the NFC championship? Or when you they hired Dan Campbell and had weird press conferences, did you think they would be in the NFC championship? And one of the main reasons why even now even being underdogs even being on the road even knowing the history of this team I'm not going to give my pick away until Saturday but I don't think that this Lions team is much of an underdog at all against the 49ers I will save my predictions but I don't, I don't, I don't see much of an underdog when I look at the Lions. I see issues. Every team has issues, but those issues aren't so staggering that they can't win, or the, or they're. I'm not gonna say they can't win. They're they're massive underdogs. Shouts out to the Lions for beating the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 31 to 23, and for Tampa Bay. Before I get off of football, you know why they say <laughs> a cheater is always going to cheat, or once a cheater, always a cheater? You know why they say that the pers- the likelihood of somebody that has left jail to go back to jail is so high, it's because of tendencies. It's because once you've molded yourself into something, once you have developed habits, whether good habits or bad habits, it's, I'm not going to say it's impossible because it's not impossible, but it's, incredibly difficult to overcome said habits. When we look at someone like Russell Westbrook, Russell Westbrook plays the same exact way he did year one that he does now. It doesn't matter the jersey. It doesn't matter the teammates. Russell Westbrook plays the same exact way. The, the way that Russell Westbrook plays has garnished him success in the league. It's gotten him an MVP. He's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. That is the how Russell Westbrook approaches the game hasn't changed. Which is why I think it's always funny and interesting when I see people say that Russell Westbrook needs to change his game. It's almost impossible because he's never had to do it. Same with James Harden. It's almost impossible because he's never had to do it. I look at Baker Mayfield. And we saw the best of Baker Mayfield and we saw the worst of Baker Mayfield in one game. Baker Mayfield threw for 349 yards, three touchdowns. 
the best of Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield going against this defense that is a good, really good defense in the Detroit Lions was going toe and toe for toe. Hit after hit after hit. Mike Evans had eight catches for 147 yards. They were just going blow after blow after blow after blow after blow. But those habits, those tendencies, they reared his in the the. The habits that Baker Mayfield has developed over his career reared its ugly head. And don't get me wrong. I think Baker Mayfield has earned every penny of what he's about to get in his next contract. And I do think that he has earned a significant contract after what he did this year with the with the Bucks. But we've also but we also saw in that game why Baker Mayfield has or is even with the Bucks to speak. Because of those two interceptions. The last one being the game ending interception. I'm not here crapping on Baker Mayfield. I think Baker Mayfield has done an exceptional job this year. I think Baker Mayfield has done much better than anyone, including probably him, could have expected. But I do think that you have to take the best and the worst with a player. And we saw the best out of Baker Mayfield throwing 349 yards, three touchdowns, and we also saw the worst of Baker Mayfield throwing two touch two interceptions, one of them being the game ending interception for and season ending interception, I'll say, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So again, I'm gonna save my picks for Saturday's episode. I'm gonna break down how the game's gonna go, how I think the game's gonna go, uh, this, that, and a third, but Congratulations to all the teams that were in the divisional round, definitely. I think that I know it's crazy to say when you're looking at the Lions, but I think we got the four best teams in football that are remaining. I know obviously they're they're the obviously four best teams, but I think when you look at how the season went and you look at uh you know the talent on each roster Outside of possibly the Cowboys, I think that these four teams were the best teams throughout the year in football. So, again, I will give my predictions on the divisional or divisional championships or conference championships, I'm sorry, uh, on Saturday. But let's move over to basketball. I'm hearing a lot. I I sat and thought about something the other day or yes, two days ago. So Joel Embiid had an incredible, had an all time game. He went for 70 points, 18 rebounds. 
And I heard a lot of people talking about we're going back to the Biggs era. We're going back to an era where the Biggs dominated. And then I thought about it. Like, I, I've really thought hard. And shouts out to Colin Cowherd because he, he kind of emphasized this as well. But I thought about this hard. You hear about small ball era. You hear about the league, the NFL, or NBA, I'm sorry, being in a small ball era where the best shot to win has been with a small lineup. And I have to sit and think about that for a second, man. I'm questioning, was there ever a small ball era? Hear me out. In fact, let's let's go on this journey together, guys. Let's look at the last, let's say, 10 NBA champions. The last 10. You have the Denver Nuggets, and the MVP of that championship was Nikola Jokic, a big. You had the Golden State Warriors. The MVP was Steph Curry. You had the Milwaukee Bucks, the MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo. You had the LA Lakers, MVP LeBron James, and now I mean Finals MVP. You had the Toronto Raptors, MVP uh, Kawhi Leonard. The Golden State Warriors twice, both times MVP Kevin Durant. You had LeBron James in the Golden on the Cleveland Cavaliers, 2016. LeBron James. You had the Golden State Warriors in 2015. Andre Gudala. You had the San Antonio Spurs in 2014. Kawhi Leonard. And you have the Miami Heat, both 2012 and 2013. LeBron James. You can even go back to 2011. When the uh, Dallas Mavericks beat the Miami Heat and Dirk Nowinski. The era of small ball was thought to have started pretty much with the 2015 Golden State Wars, the quote unquote death lineup. The death lineup that had Draymond Green play the center, Andre Gudala, uh, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, Harrison Barnes. That was the quote-unquote death lineup and the start of the quote-unquote small ball lineup. But if we're looking, even after 2015, LeBron James, 6'8", small forward, arguably the greatest player of all time. Kevin Durant, seven foot, seven foot guard slash forward, arguably the greatest scorer of all time. 
Kawhi Leonard, arguably the greatest forward defender of all time. Still, what, 6'6", six, 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 no, 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, Giannis Antetokounmpo, 7-foot freight train. And Nikola Jokic. In fact, let me enhance this argument. If Joel Embiid wins the MVP this year, which right now he is the favorite to win. If Joel Embiid wins the MVP this year, this will be the third consecutive MVP that has gone back to back. It will be Giannis, seven feet, Nikola Jokic, seven feet, and Joel Embiid, seven feet. And on top of that, when you look at all these teams, name me the other team outside of Golden State and Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green. Name me the other team that has found success playing small ball. I'll wait. Because when you look at this, when you look at the last 10 or 11 NBA champions, they didn't play small ball. In fact, I only know one team that played small ball successfully, and that is the Golden State Warriors. Because they have an all-time point guard in Steph Curry, and they have an all-time defender in Draymond Green. Which made me really sit and think. I know it sounds good. And I know it's a success. I know it was successful for them. But I don't think there was ever a small ball era. Because with something with an era having with, with there having to be an era, there has to be success in multiple areas for it to be an era. When we talk about the 80s, 90s, and the physicality of basketball, that's because it was physical. We saw Jordan damn near die in the getting uh getting clotheslined in the air. We've seen that. So we can see evidence of the physicality in today's basketball is much different than it was in the 80s and 90s. There is quantitative evidence that shows that. There isn't much evidence outside of the Golden State Warriors to prove that small ball has worked in the NFL or NBA. And honestly, there isn't much evidence to prove that small ball was successful in the NBA outside of Golden State. Because look at the teams now. Look at look at the teams that we consider the best right now. What do they have in common? The Baltimore, or the Baltimore, the Boston Celtics. Jason Tatum is tall. Jalen Brown is tall. They have a tall center. I mean, a, a tall center in Christos Porzingis. They have a tall guard in Drew Holiday. You want to go to the Milwaukee Bucks. While, yes, Damian Lillard is short, you have Giannis. You have Brooke Lopez. Height. Tall, big. You want to talk about the Denver Nuggets. Jamal Murray, outside of that, you have Contavious uh, Caldwell-Pope, taller. Aaron Gordon, taller. Nikola Jokic, two-time MVP. And finals MVP. 
the you can even go to the you can go to the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves. Carl Anthony Towns, tall. Rudy Gobert, tall. Uh, Anthony Edwards, taller. The Oklahoma City Thunder, Shea Gilgis Alexander, tall. The Jalen Williams, tall. Chet Holmgren, tall. What it is is, you know what this era should be. I don't think there was ever a small but era. This is the era of the skill. This is the era of skill. The league has never been this skilled. In fact, if you go back to that list of people that have won finals MVPs, there is one outlier in the last 10 years. You know who that outlier is? Steph Curry in 2022. Because all the other MVPs were guards, I mean, no, were forwards and centers. So you can't attach a era when it's only been successful with one team. But I do think that this is the era of skill. It takes skill. I know people want to crap on Shaq, but he was skilled because he was able, he knew what he had and, and the advantages that he had with his body, with his sides, with his strength, and he was able to use that. He was also fast as hell. Joel Embiid is arguably one of the most skilled players in the league right now. I know he may not be as skilled as, say, a Nikola Jokic because of the passing, but things that Joel Embiid does scoring the ball, no one can do because of his size, because of his strength. This is why there's such an argument with is Joel Embiid the quote unquote new new Shaq. I don't think there will ever be a Shaquille O'Neal. Let's let's get that out the way. But I do think that Joel Embiid is is putting on he's he's sending a message that he is indeed the most dominant player in the league right now i know the question always is in the air is it Giannis? is it nikola Jokic? i think joel Embiid is trying to silence that seeing as though if he if this league finished today he will be the first center i think in nba history to lead the league in scoring for three consecutive years and as you said today there there's no way to stop Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid's biggest criticisms came from his own fault, meaning he takes too much threes. He takes too much jump shots. Well, now he don't do that. He gets to the rim and he dominates. I don't think we've ever gotten out of a bigs era. I think that bigs have always been important outside of one team, which is the Golden State Warriors. But again, we're talking about a team that is undoubtedly one of the greatest teams scoring, one of the greatest teams of all time. When we talk about just the offensive firepower and the defense, you had a team with, in my opinion, the uh, the two greatest shooters of all time in Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, then you had arguably a top five shooter of all time in Kevin Durant. Then you had a generational defender in both Draymond Green and Andre Iguodala. 
and you had an architect to put it all together and Steve Kerr. That don't mean that don't make an error. That just makes you a, a superior team in NBA history. There, there, we have always had an era of bigs. We've never left the big era. Yes, things have changed. Like there's been a shooting boom. Like there's been an offensive boom. There's been now when you look at someone like Joel Embiid, when you look at someone like a Nikola Jokic, when you look at someone like Dirk Nowinski, it's very important to shoot the ball. And it's very important to have a big that can shoot. But it's always been a bigs era. We've never gotten out. Bigs have always been important. They just haven't been as skilled as they are in today's game. And that's all around the board. Not just bigs as far as centers and forwards. We have big guards. Luka Doncic is a big guard. Shea Gildress is a big guard. DeJounte Murray is a big guard. And those are extremely vital to have. Even though he's struggling right now, Klay Thompson is still 6'7". To put that in context, that's one inch shorter than LeBron, well, two inch shorter than LeBron James. So, <laughs> I said all that to say congratulations <laughs> to Joel Embiid for becoming the first center since Wilt Chamberlain to drop 70 points in a game and 18 rebounds. Right now, there he's leaving little doubt to who currently is the best center in the league. It's very hard to pick anyone other than the reigning MVP in uh, Joel Embiid. So, shouts out to him. I want to highlight Carl Anthony Towns for a second because... Carl Anthony Towns also had a huge feat, uh, dropping a career high, 62 points for the Wolves in a loss to the Hornets. And I look <laughs> I look at this 62 points as somewhat of a cautionary tale. What happens when you do things the wrong way? Let me first say that it is a skill to drop 62 points. Not everyone, I, not everyone in the league can drop 62 points. I just keep it. Carl Anthony Towns is on a very special list, list of not only big man in the league, but of shooting big man. I think that he is undoubtedly the second best shooting big man of all time. If you want to, if you want to include Dirk. If you're not including Dirk as a quote-unquote big man, then I think Carl Anthony Towns is probably the best shooting big man of all time. But the Timberwolves, who is number one in the eat in the West, went about this the wrong way. And I don't mean it in a way that you think I mean it. If my man's if I'm if I'm I, there's been multiple occasions where I've been on a team, whether that's pickup, whether that's college, whether that's uh, high school. I've been on a team where one of my guys is going off. I'll never forget this story. College. 
I'm playing for my team. Uh, and one of my teammates, Denzel Bowden, shouts out to him. Hope he's doing good. Denzel Bowden, he is having a game of his life. Like, we went into the we went into halftime. I think he had like 28 points. Now in college, that's incredible. And the game plan going into the game, mind you, Denzel was not our main player. He was not our best player, but he was just hot. And the game plan after seeing how the first half went is yo let's let's create for Denzel let's get Denzel more let's get Denzel back hot let's let's ride his offensive momentum but what we ultimately won that game and Denzel had like i think maybe 33 or maybe 35 points or something like that or maybe 30 he had 37 when your man is going off like that when your teammate and you can see from jump oh he's having a night you do everything that you can to help them continue that streak but not just to continue the streak but to win the game that's what the Minnesota Timberwolves failed to do. At the, at the end of the day, you want to win. Don't get me wrong. Yes. But you don't do it at the... You don't help your mans win and completely throw away the things, the keys to winning the game. And that's what the Minnesota Timberwolves did. They threw away their defensive intensity. They threw away their winning game plan to force feed Carl Anthony Towns. Now, no, I am not downgrading anything that Carl Anthony Towns did because 62 points is 62 points. (laughs) You know how hard it is to score 62 points in 2K, let alone real life? So I'm not taking anything away from what Carl Anthony Towns did. What I'm shining light on the fact is the reason why the Minnesota Timberwolves lost to a team that is, is one of the worst teams in basketball while helping Carl Anthony Towns get 62 points because there became a point in the game where the players completely forgot or completely just said, Maybe not consciously, but subconsciously said, all right, my goal is to get Carl Anthony Towns as much points as possible because he's he's hot and completely forgot. Oh, yeah, we still got to win a game. And they thought that the momentum from Carl Anthony Towns was going to win them the game, which was not the case. They were up double digits in this game and essentially lost to a hapless Hornets team. That was shorthanded, might I add. So shouts out to Carl Anthony Towns for getting 62. I'm not taking anything away from you, brother. You are one of, you're probably a top, you know, probably. You're a top five center in this league. But what you saw the Timberwolves do is they lost their winning integrity to help Carl Anthony Towns get his points. 
And in certain situations, we saw that before with uh, Devin Booker, when Devin Booker dropped 70 and they lost. Now, obviously, these are that was two different situations. The This Tim, Timberwolves team was much better than that Phoenix Suns team. But still, they completely... The, the objective for the players, maybe not the coaches, but for the players were, we are riding the hot hand, let's give the ball to Carl Anthony Towns. And they completely went away from the winning formula. And the winning formula is different for different teams, but they were winning majority of the game. But shouts out to Carl Anthony Towns. Uh, we had breaking news yesterday. Um, Adrian Griffin who is now the former head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks, was fired. This is, at least from the outside looking in, this is shocking news, seeing as though the Bucks have one of the best records in basketball. This is the first year that, obviously, you have the pairing of Damian Lillard and Giannis. So we knew that was going to take some time. Um, I've said this before, and I've said this again. Sports is a star-driven league or star-driven thing. More obviously basketball than football, but if you're invest, if you have a franchise changer, if you have a generational player like a Steph, like a Giannis Antetokounmpo, like a Nikola Jokic, like a Joel Embiid, like a LeBron James, they're going to have the ultimate say so. Because you know what, other teams don't have that you have a generational player. There's there's not many of them in the league. There's great players. There's Hall of Fame worthy players. There's championship worthy players, but generational players, there's not many of them. The Bucks, you know what's perfect example. Damian Lillard is not a generational player. He's a great player. He's a Hall of Famer. He is not a generational player. Giannis is a generational player. Um, Anthony Davis is not a generational player. He has the ability to be one, but he has not shown that he is a generational player. LeBron James, obviously, is a generational player. <laughs> to a very, very, very lesser extent, and no offense to him, Steph Curry is a generational player. Jordan Poole is not and was not. Very talented scoring the ball when he was with Golden State, but there's differences. And I'm not saying that Giannis got Adrian Griffin fired. Because I don't know what happened. This is breaking news. Um, but I do know that if Giannis wanted Adrian Griffin, Adrian Griffin would still be the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. If Giannis wanted to keep Adrian Griffin, we wouldn't be talking about Adrian Griffin right now. Now, this Bucks team hasn't looked good majority of the year. Even though 
when you have talented players like Giannis, like Dame, you're going to you're going to stumble into wins. But anyone that has looked at the Bucks this year cannot say that they have looked like a championship caliber team. Uh as far as defensively. Now, I knew they were going to struggle when you give up a Drew Holiday, when you give up a Grayson Allen for Damian Lillard, who is historically not known to be playing defense. I thought they were going to struggle. And yes, they have struggled, but I also thought it was going to take time for them to. Un- I knew the defense wasn't going to be the same, but I thought it was going to take time for Giannis and Dame to, to gel, which is why you saw some of the early losses that you saw. So I'm shocked. I don't really have much of an analysis on this. I'm shocked. Uh, I didn't see it coming. I didn't know if Adrian Griffin was the right coach, but he was the coach. And I just didn't think that they were going to fire him, especially when you look at the standings. Give me a second. When you look at the standings, the Milwaukee Bucks have the second best record in the East. So I'm shocked, but hey. Again, if Giannis wanted him to be there, he would be there. That's all I'll say on that. <laughs> so, uh, we'll see, I guess. Kevin Durant, man. <laughs> Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant has, is, on, is in the news uh, lately for some of the comments that he said. When asked or questioned about, or when discussing, because I don't know what prompted this or what brought it up, but when discussing the greatest of all time, the argument of greatest of all time, we usually hear the same few names. We hear LeBron James. We hear Michael Jordan. We hear Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We hear Magic Johnson. To a lesser extent, we hear... Kobe Bryant and Tim Duncan, you know, Shaq. We hear those type of names. The name that you never hear is Kevin Durant. (laughs) And Kevin Durant was questioning that, pretty much saying, what has he not done? Why is he not in the considered when discussing the greatest of all time conversation? Why is it that when people say X player is the greatest of all time or Y player is the greatest of all time, they're never really discussing Kevin Durant? I talked about this briefly with when I was talking about Lamar Jackson. We're at a we're at a day and age where greatness is a lot closer than it used to be. And what that means is, let's look at the Michael Jordan era. There was Michael Jordan, and then nobody was close to Michael Jordan. Like, close. Now, you had talent, obviously. Clyde Drexler, Dominique Wilkins. You had uh, Charles Barkley. You had a young Kobe. You had Hakeem Olajuwon. All great players, all all time players. But there was such a gap between them and Michael Jordan that it wasn't there was really no discussion of who was the best player. When you look at today's basketball and you look at basketball or the Kevin Durant era, 
or the era that Kevin Durant has played basketball in. Talent is so close. Like, let's not get it twisted. I don't think talent-wise, I don't think Kevin Durant is much further than LeBron James is. I don't think that Kevin Durant is much further than, let's say, Steph Curry is. I don't think there's much of a gap between talent-wise, between Kevin Durant and Tracy McGrady, or Kevin Durant and uh, Carmelo Anthony back in the day. Kevin Durant or, let's say... uh, Kawhi Leonard. So because of that, like I said about Lamar Jackson, accolades matter. Because when talent doesn't have such a gap where there's just like, uh, you know, we can't say much, then there has to be something there. There has to, we have to throw in accolades. And Excuse me. For a career, Kevin Durant has averaged 27.4 points a game, four assists a game, um, seven rebounds a game. He's one of the greatest scorers of all time. But when we talk about accolades, that is why. You see, I was never I was never upset with Kevin Durant for choosing Golden State. I I, I don't think that Kevin Durant's move to Golden State wasn't a snake move. I, I don't I don't I thought that he made the best decision for him to win. And Kevin Durant was at a point of his career where he was dangerously falling in that Charles Barkley, Dominique Wilkins um pool of great but never won a championship John Stockton Kevin Durant was falling was was dangerously living in that in that realm and going to Golden State was obviously the best option for him so I was never in ultimately winning a championship so I was never I never was upset I was never hating on or, or I don't. I was never mad that Kevin Durant went to Golden State to essentially play alongside uh, Steph, Clay, and all them, and and get a championship or two. But what it did was it forever changed this conversation. I'm I'm not gonna say he was a snake. I'm not gonna say this, that, and the third. But what it did do is it drastically changed this conversation, this greatest of all time conversation, drastically. That's one thing that I will admit and and agree with everyone else as far as this, that move did affect this conversation because with a move like that comes expectation. And it doesn't just come expectation as far as what you do with that team. It's always about what you do after that team as well. 
You see, Kevin Durant set the bar incredibly high for himself going to Golden State. You're playing alongside arguably a top 10 player of all time and arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest point guard of all time in Steph Curry. And you essentially did what you wanted to do. You won two championships. You would have won a third if everyone didn't get hurt. But people looked at that move however they want to look at that move. People saying it's the weakest move from a superstar. Cool. Got you. I hear you. I hear you, Finn. Slim. But now... Whether you understood it or not, there is now an expectation that if and when you do leave this team, you have to win a championship without that team, without the greatness of Steph Curry, without the greatness of Klay Thompson, without the greatness of Draymond Green, without the greatness of Steve Kerr. And you haven't done that. And on top of that, I understand that we're not breaking down the entire situations, but you had Kyrie Irving. You had James Harden. You had now Devin Booker and Bradley Beal. You played alongside Russell Westbrook. You played against, you played alongside an MVP in James Harden, an MVP in Russell Westbrook, an MVP or future MVP at the time, Russell Westbrook and James Harden. You played two-time MVP in Steph Curry. You played finals MVP or finals champion Kyrie and Devin Booker, who has a 70-point game in 70-point game in his career. You see, if we just talk about talent then yes, Kevin Durant is most definitely in the conversation of greatest of all time. But the greatest of all time conversation isn't just about talent. Because when we talk about talent, there isn't much difference up there, up in that realm. You see, people didn't put Kevin Dur- or people didn't put Steph Curry in that top 10 conversation until when? 2022, when he did what? Win a championship after Kevin Durant. Mind you, Steph Curry won a championship before Kevin Durant, but nobody put him in that top 10 conversation, that greatest point guard of all time conversation until when? 2022. Again, before then, he already had three championships. He had two MVPs, one of them being unanimous. And he was already considered the greatest shooter of all time. But what didn't they call him? A top 10 player. Arguably the greatest point guard of all time until 2022. When he won a championship after playing alongside Kevin Durant. And that's, un- that's how it is. Skill doesn't matter here. Because LeBron James is skilled. Michael Jordan skilled. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is skilled. Magic Johnson is skilled. Shaq is skilled. 
And those skills ain't much, much apart from each other. So now when you talk, tag on accolades and how you got those accolades, that's where the conversation changes, Kevin Durant. I've been here and saying that I think that Kevin Durant is arguably the greatest offensive weapon of all time. And yes, that's even the person that I'm wearing his hoodie, Kobe. I think Kevin Durant is argue is arguably a greater offensive weapon than Kobe Bean Bryant. But when we talk about greatest of all time, until I see you be the best player on a team definitively and win a championship like Michael Jordan was, like LeBron James was several times. That's why Kevin Durant's not in the conversation. And I love Kevin Durant, both from the DMV area. I'm never going to say anything bad about Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant is great. I th- I've 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 been on this hill saying Kevin Durant's better than Larry Bird, <laughs> but even Larry Bird has things that Kevin Durant hasn't, and that KD is why people don't put you in the greatest of all time conversations. <sighs> Lastly, before we go, I want to have a little bit of fun. Um. I saw that Dwayne The Rock Johnson was on first take the other day, and it got me thinking. I started this episode talking about it with a subjective question, and the thing about subjective questions that is beautiful, and honestly, subjective questions show you humanity, show you just the, the how different humans are. Subjective questions, you can ask 10 people a question that is subjective and you'll get 10 different answers. Like one of the most famous subjective questions is, what's your favorite movie? Or what's your favorite artist? What's your favorite song? You ask 100 people, you'll get 100 different answers. That shows just how different people are. A sports subjective question is Mount Rushmore. Who is on your Mount Rushmore? Who is on your ex or basketball Mount Rushmore, basketball Mount Rushmore? That question is subjective because everyone is different. There's people that think that Jerry Rice is on the football Mount Rushmore. There's people that think Lawrence Taylor. There's people that think Randy Moss. There's people that think Patrick Mahomes. The question is different. In the or the question, you'll get a different answer. And with The Rock being on first take and talking about you know WrestleMania and his 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 fighting days, I thought about my Rush, Mount Rushmore wrestlers. Now, no, 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 no. I'm not a foot. I'm not a wrestling fanatic. I used to be a huge wrestling fan back like when I was a kid. And this is no offense to all the adults that are wrestling fans. I'm this this honestly is a segment for you. I'm not I'm not poking any fun. I'm just saying that 
I am not a huge wrestling fan. I don't watch wrestling anymore. I it's just something I just stopped watching. And it's no no offense to anyone that watches it. Shouts out to y'all. I I used to. I used to be a huge fan, man. I used to watch it Monday Raw, uh Friday night SmackDown. I used to watch all of it. Uh there I I even as a kid sometimes got my mom very rare, maybe happened two or three times in my life, got her to pay the pay-per-view to watch a WrestleMania or to watch a Royal Rumble or Survivor Series or SummerSlam, you know? So while I am not a current wrestling fan or a current wrestling fanatic, I do have a long, extensive history of enjoying the WWF and the WWE, you know? And it's so interesting because I did a couple, little bit of research. I Google, I typed in, Googled, and YouTubed WWE or WWF Mount Rushmore, and I got millions of different videos i didn't watch millions but i got millions of different videos showing seeing that this question even for ww or wrestling fans is the same so for the unpopular topic of the day i'm going to give you my mount rushmore which is obviously who is my four favorite wrestlers of all time no particular order um now again when I was younger, I used to love wrestling. And there was no, I, I was one of those kids until I I was one of those kids that my mom bought me a WWE or WWF World Champion belt. I had toys galore. Like I I I was WWF down. Like you couldn't tell me. I used to like wrestling more than basketball. Now, for people that know me and hear that statement, you would think that's crazy as, as much as I love basketball now. But I used to love wrestling way more than I love basketball. And one of the people that I used to love, obviously, is The Rock, which is why I started this. So The Rock is number I'm not going to in no particular order. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just saying one, two and three as far as listing but there's it's no one is not better than four you know so for the first person on my Mount Rushmore is The Rock there have been a lot of African-American uh, wrestlers before The Rock and after The Rock obviously but The Rock was the first person that I I think as a kid felt like we had something in common because of our race. And on top of that, The Rock was one of the most electrifying people to watch. Like when you talk about the people's elbow and if you smell, you know, stuff like like you boy, when that song came on and then you did the eyebrow like it 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 as a kid, I was elated. Like the rock, I looked at the rock the same way people looked at Tom Brady, you know, like, like, ooh, the rock is the rock. Um, so the rock is, is on my Mount Rushmore. And if I'm going to put the rock, the next person I have to put is Stone Cold Steve Austin. Stone Cold Steve Austin, while I didn't, I didn't feel a connection to him as far as like my personality or whatever. 
um, the the it was so interesting and so fascinating watching Stone Cold because he was one of the first people that I can remember. I'm sure there was people before him that I can remember that his sole purpose was to buck the system. You know, we talk about the rattlesnake. We talk about, you know, breaking the glass. John 316. When we talk about the beer, we talk about the ATVs. We talk about the the Stone Cold Stunner. We talk about the, the skull that he had. It's everything about Stone Cold embodied bucking the system. And it he alongside with the rock alongside with people like Bret Hart alongside people like Shawn Michaels they had the, the some of those matches were incredible some of those matches were life changing for me like i remember one of the first pay-per-views my mom bought for me was i i believe it was wrestlemania when the rock went against stone cold i that that is still arguably one of my favorite matches of all time because of the nostalgia because you, two of my favorite wrestlers of all time right now are, are are fighting each other and it was it was great so um my my two faces on my mount rushmore right now is uh the rock stone cold and the third one i have is the undertaker you can't look at wrestling you can't look at where wrestling is. You can't look at where wrestling came from without the contributions from The Undertaker. Um, from his stare to the, the caskets to some of the legendary matches like him and Edge uh, to some of the pyrotechnics that he used. There will never be a wrestler like the Undertaker. Now, yes, there are some great wrestlers. Don't get me wrong. Like Roman Reigns is great, and and Cody Rhodes is great, and uh, you know, there are there are some great rest. John Cena was great, but when we embody, when when we talk about the embodiment of fear as well as greatness as well as legendary, it doesn't go as far as you can't go much further than the Undertaker. In fact. I like The Undertaker so much. You know how upset I was when I found out in real life that The Undertaker and Kane were not real brothers? <laughs> like, I was devastated. There's, You know how people, you know, have that quote-unquote wrestling's not real or, and how it, or when kids find out that Santa isn't real? Like, when I found out that Kane and Undertaker was not a real brother- I was like, what? I felt like my whole life was a lie, you know? <laughs> but I, I loved watching Undertaker. Uh, he was just great. And I was, even though at that time I wasn't watching wrestling at all, really, I was still hurt. I still felt some type of way when Brock Lesnar bro broke uh, Undertaker's WrestleMania streak. Like, again, at that time, I wasn't watching wrestling. But when I heard that, I was like, oh, Oh, like I felt it in my chest. Like, wait a second, what is going on? <laughs> so, Undertaker is definitely in my um, Mount Rushmore. So, the fourth one, I could have gone a bunch of places. I could have gone with uh, Triple H. I think Triple H, 
you know, with I used to do that. I know it was probably nasty as hell. Now I think about it, but I used to do that like in my room. I used to do that outside with the whole, you know, put a mouthful of water and then spit it out. And yeah, I used to do all that. Um, and I, I, I love. I think Triple H's entrance music is one of the best. It's all about the game and how you play it. Yeah, I think that's one of the best intros ever. Um, I can go with John Cena. I think John Cena. He has been vital for wrestling as a whole. Um, and John Cena, kind of like Batista, shout out to Batista, DC native, or DC uh, DC native, I guess. They have had, and The Rock obviously has had incredible success both with wrestling and in, with the box office, you know. Batista, he was great in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, he was also in what? What else was he in? What's that? Dune was a pretty good movie. Uh, John Cena's had an uber success. He was in Fast and the Furious, you know. Uh, so shouts out to them. But for my fourth person, now again, this is a very subjective conversation. So I'm just giving my opinion. I'm probably gonna clip this up and put it out, and I'm sure that this is gonna get a bunch of comments saying, "How did you forget?" This is my list. If you want you give me your list, you give me your list. I'm 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 all ears. Uh my last person, my fourth person has to go to Jeff Hardy. I thought well, you, you know those instances where they say don't try this at home and you see those videos of brothers, you know, suplexing their sister or rock bottom in their sister. Me and my sister had a very rocky relationship growing up because I used to do Jeff Hardy moves on my sister, whether it was damn near broke my neck trying to do the swan tom bomb on her before uh, I used to do the whole, you know, Jeff Hardy th- pelvic thrust jump like it. Boy, Jeff Hardy, you couldn't tell me anything. And that is my favorite match of all time that I've watched the I think it was the WWE Championship. It was a three, uh, triple threat. Jeff Hardy, Edge, and Triple H. And Jeff Hardy ultimately won it. That Or the WWE Championship, yeah. That was my favorite match of all time. I was, when I tell you, I, there's a little, there's, a, there's not much things in life that get me to the point where I'm like cheesing happy. You know, like, don't get me wrong. I'm happy about a lot of things, but there's not a lot of light in life that gets me to the point where I can't stop cheesing because I'm so happy about something. When I saw Jeff Hardy beat Triple H and Edge in a in that triple threat match to win the WWE MVP or WWE championship, I was elated. Jeff Hardy, whether we talk about some of the extreme rules matches or the table ladders and chairs match that he was integral in growing and building. Some of his legendary matches with the Dudley brothers, with Edge and Christian, uh, with even his brother Matt Hardy. It, boy, it, man. This man was doing swan tom bombs off of the project, like off of the entrance screen. Like, come on, bro. My Mount Rushmore of wrestling is The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, and Jeff Hardy. 
what is your Mount Rushmore? I understand that some people, most everyone's is going to be different, and I'm welcome to that. Let me know what your Mount Rushmore is. We'll discuss it. I, I, I that is, I want to have a discord about that. I want to have a conversation about that in the, in the comments. Leave me who your Mount Rushmore was in wrestling, and, and we'll talk about it. And there you have it, man. That has been today's episode of the Unpopular Podcast. I truly, truly, truly appreciate you guys. Um, if you want an Unpopular Podcast shirt, hoodie, sweater, long sleeve joggers, the link is in the description below. I have multiple different colors, multiple different designs. Get your Unpopular Podcast merch today. Also, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. I'm trying to get as many subscribers as possible. I'm trying to get my engagement up. So tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend. Like, comment, share. It definitely means a lot to me. Um, also, my my DSP listeners are just as important as my YouTube listeners. So if you're listening on a DSP, whether that's SoundCloud, Apple Music, uh, Spotify, please follow. Please subscribe. It definitely means a lot. Um, also, follow the socials, follow Instagram, follow TikTok. I post pretty much daily there. That's the fastest way to get to me as far as wanting to me to see a comment or trying to comment something. Just keep it respectful and I'll probably comment back. Just let me know. Um, and until next time, much love.